This is an I Am Listening original podcast. All I can say is that I speak to lots of residents across Dover and Deal, lots of people who are concerned about the sorts of issues that that party is, uh, you know, attracting or trying to attract votes from. And I think, as I said before, it's really for each of the political parties to set out their stall and to say, you know, why they really want to ask people to vote for them. Welcome to the Kent Politics Podcast, your go-to source for insightful discussions on local and national political matters. Join us as we take a deep dive into local government across the county. Find out what the key decision makers have to say, what your money is being spent on, and how the party's policies could affect how we live. Plus, don't miss our regular feature, Westminster Watch, where we dissect the latest developments and decisions shaping the political landscape in the heart of the UK's capital. Engage with us as we delve into the issues that matter to you and explore the dynamic world of politics from a Kent perspective. Welcome to the Kent Politics Pod. In a week, it was revealed many of the county's 99 library buildings could be sold off as cash-strapped Kent County Council grapples to find even more savings. Then, days later, they said they wouldn't be sold. Controversial plans for Chatham Docks were finally submitted and the future of the county's green belt came back into focus. I'm Simon Finley, local democracy reporter covering Kent County Council, and I'm joined by my colleagues Robert Boddy, who covers Bedway Council. Hello. And Daniel Essen, who covers Borough and District Councils throughout Hello. the county. We'll also be speaking to KM political editor Paul Francis about the week in Westminster and special guest Natalie Elphick, the MP for Dover and Deal. First up, we're going to talk about what's happening at Medway Castle's Gun Wharf HQ. Robert, what have you been up to? So the big news in Medway uh, this week is that developments going on at Chatham Docks. So firstly, they opened a new affordable housing block. um, And this week, they've submitted a planning application for their business and enterprise campus called Basin 3 on the Chatham Docks Industrial Estate. What's controversial about that then? Well, so the plans are to knock down the existing warehouses and build a set of new units of different sizes for a variety of businesses. The problem has been that the businesses on the site didn't want to move, although only one uh, business actually is left saying they don't want to be relocated. So because of this, uh, previously the Save Chatham Docks campaign was launched and they say they're going to fight this application and the whole development to the very end. So why are they opposing it then? Well, they say that it doesn't really make economic sense. They say there's already a, a plenty of high quality jobs on the site. So why would you risk getting rid of all of those for some uncertain jobs uh, that the development might or might not deliver. Mm, So what happens now then? So the planning application has been submitted. It will go to planning officers to look over and see if it's viable. And then it will be available for the general public to raise objections to, which the Save Jatham Docks campaign say they're absolutely going to do. And then it's likely will go to a planning committee sometime in the future. If Basin 3 is approved, Work won't start until 2026, as the businesses currently on site have their leases until the end of next year. And even then, Arkelor, Mytel, Kent say it's going to hold out and it has a right to renew its lease uh, at the end of 2025, so it may go on beyond that as well. So what else is going on? Slightly less contentious though still a little bit contentious, was a decision made by the Cabinet a couple of weeks ago to sell off a couple of car parks, the Union Place car park in Chatham and the Temple Street car park in Strood. They said that these would serve the community much better uh, through redevelopment, but that decision, uh, which was made in December, has now been called in by the opposition. Just just for clarity, um, uh, what does calling 
calling in actually mean and what's the reason for doing it? So calling in is basically asking for another look at a decision. So in this case, uh, it went to the Regeneration Culture and Environment Scrutiny Committee and it was debated by councillors on January 23rd. The Tories basically said that they don't feel that all possible options have been explored to keep these car parks running and they don't really see the business case for for the decision to sell them. When it went to the committee, the call-in was voted down by the Labour group, so it will progress as normal. And they were pretty scathing towards the Tories, basically saying that they didn't understand the issue, they hadn't read the papers, and that they didn't understand that they weren't just going to flog off these car parks for the first bidder who came along, but actually... If they don't get the right price for it, then they're not going to sell them. So this will go on as it was uh, intended to originally, if slightly delayed. Now moving on to Kent's borough and district councils. Daniel, what's been happening in your world? I've mainly been taking a look at Kent's protected landscapes. So that's Greenbelt, areas of outstanding natural beauty and what the future may hold for them. So just can you help define for the listeners, you know, what is a Greenbelt these days and what is an AOMB? So an AOMB can be basically anywhere where, you know, the, the environment is deemed to be of sufficient value. There's two of those in Kent. There's the Kent Downs, which starts all the way in Bromley and goes, you know, all the way down to the coast near Folkestone and Dover. And then there's the High Weald AOMB, which is in West Kent near sort of Tunbridge and Tunbridge Wells. Um, but the Greenbelt in particular refers to protected land around the outside of cities. Um, and in Kent, obviously, that's mostly in the northwest of the county, nearer to London. So there are some districts in northwest Kent which are almost entirely greenbelt. Mainly, you know, for example, Seven Oaks is 93% greenbelt, um, Gravesham is 77%. And the short of it is that in these protected landscapes, and especially the greenbelt, it's much, much harder to get permission for any kind of building whatsoever. OK, given that local councils are under huge pressure to find places to build homes uh, and the like, you know, what are the possibilities for these protected landscapes? So politicians of almost all parties you know, openly admit that we need much more house building and places with lots of greenbelt in them are no exception. I mentioned Seven Oaks in particular is almost all greenbelt um, but needs to build over 10,000 homes in the next 15 years. So that puts them under quite a lot of pressure. There, there was a petition at Tunbridge and Morling Borough Council a couple of weeks ago to extend the greenbelt. That's quite unlikely to happen. Local councils technically decide for themselves what's the greenbelt. That's done through their local plan process which they use to govern house building over a long period of time, usually 10 to 20 years. But those plans have to be submitted to the government which holds them to housing targets. Those are officially advisory but if a local council doesn't meet the amount of housing that central government says it needs to meet, they face all sorts of consequences um, like, for example, having to accept development they would like to refuse. So in theory, councils you know, could try to extend the green belt but if they do that at the expense of housing targets, um, they'll end up getting a pretty serious smack on the wrist for it. And we've heard Keir Starmer talking about the, the grey belt. Well, what, what is he talking about when he says that? So grey belt's a term that's, um, I don't know how long it's been around, but it's becoming more popular for a while. It's used to essentially criticise the designation of green belt to argue that there's a lot of places which are officially you know, metropolitan green belts contain the urban sprawl of cities. But in practice, what they are, they're not, you know, the beautiful green rolling countryside that the name green belt suggests. So when Keir Starmer talks about grey belt, it's many interpret it as a hint that he's suggesting there will need to be a lot more building on green belt. Okay. What else have you been working on then, Dan? So earlier this week, uh, Dover District Council uh, was planning to hike its parking charges, introducing new charges at six car parks around the district, which were previously free, and increasing all parking um, charges by 20p across the board. Um, But they've backed down on most of that. Okay. Why did they back down? So they they backed down on introducing new charges at several car parks in in a few villages, Eastry, Ash, Wingham and St Margaret's. 
And they say that they back down after what they called you know, constructive community engagement, but I've, I've heard that amounts to a good few hundreds angry letters from villagers fearing the consequences that these new fees would have for their villages. Many saying stuff like, well, the village car park's very important. If you start charging there, people will just park on these you know, narrow, busy country lanes and that sort of thing. It's hardly going to be very popular, is it? No, not at all. You know, almost everyone drives. And if you drive, you're going to need to park somewhere. But district councils are, are legally responsible for managing pretty much all public parking spaces, whether they do it themselves or they outsource it to private management companies. Um, but it is one of local councils' only guaranteed incomes. Over a year ago, I, I crunched some numbers um, on every district in Kent, and local authorities make a huge amount of their money on parking. It's usually their single biggest source of income by a country mile. One council, Canterbury, over the past five years, made something like £45 million on parking. That's higher than most district councils are. They charge a lot more than most other councils in Kent. But it goes to show just the amount of money that a council can make out of parking. And you know, every single year, local government gets less money from central government, but they have lots and lots of very expensive responsibilities, which they legally have to meet. Um, so when they're under that kind of pressure, you know, increasing parking charges is pretty much one of their only guaranteed cash cows. Okay, well, thank you both very much for some very interesting things going on around the county. Simon, what's going on with you? What's happening in County Hall? Well, it's been a very interesting week in County Hall. Last Wednesday, uh, the deputy leader of Kent County Council, Peter Oakford, uh, stood up and, and said that uh, the, the the council was effectively thinking about selling off its library stock, the buildings, basically because it can't afford to run them anymore. The council, as everyone possibly will have read, is facing you know rising costs, but a squeezed amount of revenue coming from central government. But by the weekend... Once that announcement had been made, there was already one campaign group up and running as well as cross-party opposition. My understanding is that some local Conservative members didn't know much about it and uh, were rightly furious. Uh, so what happened shortly after they announced it? Well, after they, after they announced it and they had the weekend's headlines, on Tuesday a press release dropped saying that there are no plans to dispose of them after all. Uh, the Cabinet member Claire Bell said in a press release, and I quote, uh, We are continuing, as we have in the past, to monitor and review KCC library services to ensure they are sustainable in the future, looking at all the options. For example, potential for sharing premises with other services such as post offices or adult education, as it happens now in some locations. Effectively, they said, it's off the table for now, but... Never say never. So how is this sort of back and forth played politically? Well, uh, the opposition parties, needless to say, have made hay. The Green Party launched a, a, a campaign almost within a few minutes of the story dropping on Kent Online. And uh, the Liberal Democrats, quite rightly, have sort of been making some comparisons to the proposed tip closures, which went down like a, a lead balloon last year. Anthony Hope described it as uh, the tips on stilts, potentially. And so the KCC elections are coming around next year. I mean, we're still a way out, but how would you call it? Well, I don't like to make predictions for fear that it'll be wrong. But uh, the Tories are saying to me, and quite a lot of them, not just one or two, but quite a few, um, are saying that they're going to lose a lot of their seats. They've got 60 of sixty plus of the 81 seats at County Hall, so that's three quarters. And they, the other smaller parties have just a handful each. But if senior figures I've been speaking to are correct and they lose half, the other parties could potentially be able to cobble together a coalition. And uh, who that would be is quite hard to say, but the Greens may well be the surprise here. Uh, what makes you think the Greens are on the rise at KCC? Well, the Greens are, are basically sort of um, a party which has emerged, you know, in recent years as being very electable. They're once seen as sort of odd bods and cranks, but you've got the likes of... 
Caroline Lucas at Westminster. You've got a youth-leaning left-wing agenda, a, a very polished political PR operation, and they're not very electable. Plus, you know, locally here in Kent, you've got the enormous house-building program. Air pollution is getting worse. There's the loss of the countryside and the wholesale dumping of raw sewage into Kent's rivers and coastal waters probably helped their cause no end. That's what's been happening across Kent and Medway. Thanks, Robert and Daniel. Thank you. Thanks very much. Is there a topic that you would like to be discussed on the Kent Politics Podcast? Perhaps you've got a question for one of our panel, or you'd like to comment on a hot topic in local or national government. Get in touch by emailing or sending a voice note to Kent Politics Podcast at thekmgroup.co.uk. Now we move on to the national picture with the KM Group's political editor, Paul Francis, who's been on Westminster Watch. Hello, Paul. What's been going on? Well, it's been another turbulent week for the Conservatives and in particular for Rishi Sunak, who always seems to have turbulent weeks these days. And uh, the reason for it is fresh speculation about his leadership. One junior, former junior minister broke ranks this week to call for his resignation and to stand down and let somebody else do the job. Now, it's not the kind of thing that you want to be happening less than a year out from an election. But uh, that, that is, seems to be uh, the, the, the weekly occurrence these days for, uh, for Rishi. I believe you've also been doing a couple of interviews this week. Yes, we've broken out of the Westminster Bowl to talk to Richard Tice, who's the leader of the Reform Party, which, uh, if you don't know the Reform Party, it was born out of the uh, ashes, if you like, of uh, the Brexit Party and before that uh, UKIP. And it is... Uh, making some headlines because of the ratings it's getting in uh, a few opinion polls which appear to suggest that it's on the rise and is um, in some constituencies in Kent doing particularly well uh, leapfrogging over the Liberal Democrats uh, to become in in third place position. I was just going to say this is the YouGov poll which came out this week which indicated support you know, pretty strong support in places like uh, Sittingbourne and Sheppey, where it's 15%, Chatham and Aylesford, 14%, Gillingwood, 13%, etc. Uh, wh- what do you put that down to? Well, I think there's a residual feeling amongst a lot of voters that the mainstream parties, the big parties, are still not really listening to the concerns of ordinary people. You know, they're not addressing the cost of living crisis, for example, rising energy bills, and there's a certain resentment amongst uh, a lot of voters about that. Uh, and traditionally, they would have perhaps not voted or voted for one of the minority parties. And I think the the Reform Party is busy picking up support from those disaffected voters across the uh, political spectrum. I think you were seeing um, the, the Reform Party being in an interesting position. It's not going to win any seats. and It's not going to win any seats in Kent but it could have a big impact on the, on the other parties. It's, it's interesting that they've selected candidates for all but two constituencies in Kent, uh, Dover and Dale, and the new seat of East Thanet, which is born out of the old South Thanet seat where Craig McKinley has his seat. What do you think their chances are? Why have they, in those particular constituencies, and why do you think they've left those open? Well, the, the conspiracy theorists would say, well, perhaps they're leaving the door ajar to Nigel Farage to come and stand in uh, one of these vacant seats. I personally don't think that's going to happen. I did speak to him this week and he had one or two interesting things to say. And when I asked him about whether he was planning or plotting a return to frontline politics, he said he gave a non-committal answer, if you like, saying he was still 
finished you know, mulling it over, but he'd now developed a career in the media and wondered whether he had the uh, the, the, the fight to uh, return to frontline politics. We could just be hedging his bets, as, as he always does. He's quite a canny character. Oh, yes. He, he knows how to uh, uh, stir things up. Uh, although I do genuinely think that on this, he perhaps is still scarred by the defeat in South Thanet back in 2015, was it? When he stood and uh, thought that UKIP would return or UKIP would gain one seat in the uh, government and he failed, uh, and he failed because there was a coalition and alliance of uh, party supporters from different areas, uh, different parties, who perhaps uh, uh, voted in a way which uh, wasn't their usual, uh, where their usual vote would go to, but was for the... Mm, the tactical vote, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. 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 you've also been interviewing uh, the Reform Party's leader, Richard Tice. Uh, well, was he got to say about his party's chances and where are they going to be concentrating their campaigning efforts, do you think, in Kent? Well, he said that Kent would be a key battleground. We're used to party leaders saying that because if they they wouldn't say, no, we're not particularly bothered about this. But I I do genuinely feel that this is an area where he feels that the party can profit uh, because of the the, the Brexit issue being one which has not been resolved satisfactorily in the eyes of a lot of people. And, of course, the the small boats crossing, which... uh, we know the Conservatives are desperately worried about meeting their targets for curbing the number of boats crossing. And of course, they uh, pitch up at Dover and along the Kent coastline. So that's why I think he feels the party can do well. And now, just to repeat, I don't think the party's going to win anything uh, in Kent, but it could impact on the other parties. Well, we will be hearing from Natalie Elphick uh, in a short while, and perhaps she can shed some light on that and what she thinks the Reforms Party's influence is going to be. But in interviews that Richard Tice has been giving in recent weeks, the, the, the messages are always clear. He keeps talking about mass immigration, very high taxation, a freeze on non-essential Im- immigration. But you look at a, a, a constituency like Dover and Deal, where Natalie Elphick has had fairly strong views on those types of issues, basically they're kind of going into an area where they they might not get any traction. And in fact, what they might do is they might take some votes away from the sort of the blue collar, sort of right leaning Labour voter. Yeah, I think there's there are two views about that. One is is Natalie Gelfin's view. Uh, the other is that actually the Reform Party is taking votes away from both Labour and the Conservatives. Uh, and uh, he, Richard Tice, said that he didn't believe the theory that uh, he would the party would be gifting support to Labour. He feels that votes are draining away from both the main parties. OK, listen, thank you very much indeed for all that insight and uh, we'll speak to you soon, Paul. OK, nice to be here. Now we welcome our first special guest, Natalie Elphick, MP for Dover and Deal. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, Simon. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for asking me you're very welcome. Thank you very much for saying yes. The general election is coming up and polls suggest that Kent Tories not going to do so well and could lose half their seats, possibly including your own. What's the strategy for getting your way out of that one? Well, at the end of the day, in uh, in 2019, I set out a very clear stall in Dover and Deal to get Brexit done, to uh, really work hard to improve and have better local health care. 
and to really focus on jobs and money. And those are three areas in which we're seeing some real improvements and change in the area. Good results in terms of jobs and money for people, much better healthcare, more to do, but some really good results, particularly around diagnostic centres at Buckland Hospital and the blood testing services coming back to Deal Hospital and further expansion of Deal Hospital. And of course, we did get Brexit done uh, and are moving forward from that. So, you know, like any general election, it's for all the political parties to put out their store for the voters and for the voters to decide. So you think that the Dover and Deal, which has always been regarded as less of a yo-yo seat, more of a bellwether seat, that it tends to sort of dictate, it gets dictated by the, the national mood and, and, and movement. Do you think that uh, the Reform Party might play some part in that? Well, I mean, we've been here before, haven't we, with UKIP and the Brexit Party. And, you know, of course, now we have the Reform uh, Party. So, I mean, we'll have a number of candidates at the election. All I can say is that I speak to lots of residents across Dover and Deal, lots of people who are concerned about the sorts of issues that that party is, uh, you know, attracting or trying to attract votes from. And I think, as I said before, it's really for each of the political parties to set out their stalk and to say, you know, why they really want to ask people to vote for them. One thing I wanted to bring up with you was you've spoken many, many times about the whole issue of small boats crossing the channel. Illegal immigration via the channel has been going on for probably more than three decades. And last year, there were 29,000 migrants arrived on our shores via small boats. And the one thing that's always kind of intrigued me is if you get 29,000 people, that's probably, I don't know, 3,000 boats, give or take. Where do these boats actually come from? Where do the outboard motors come from? Where do these life jackets? They must be being produced somewhere in some sort of industrial scale because they can't be stolen. It's a really great question, Simon. And I think it's fair to say that that's changed through the shape of the small boats crisis. So if we go back to sort of, you know, 2018 and so early in 2019, when this was first beginning, it was absolutely, yeah, it was the case that some of these boats were stolen. And certainly when we look at the very early numbers that were sort of coming in around 2018, so you're looking at you know, around sort of the 300 mark, and it is people who are doing exactly that. And, but then we get it becoming a bit more professional, the gangs moving in, are always keen to see a chink in border security and see what they can make of it. So people buying the uh, buying the inflatables, buying the engines and that gearing up. More recently, we've seen a change in the style of boat um, that is being used. That's particularly because there's been a lot of police and enforcement and intelligence action right across Europe uh, seizing these boats, seizing these engines. So some of them so, coming in further afield, like Turkey, some of them apparently purpose-ordered from China. When you say purpose-ordered from China, there are factories in China making these boats and then having them transported two-thirds of the way across the world to be used on a beach in Calais. Well, people are ordering the boats from a wide array of sources and some of those sources have been closed down and are actively closed down by the police and enforcement officers right across Europe. And then sometimes they're coming in through other routes, as I say, um, reportedly from China and Turkey. So, you know, these are global people smugglers. It's serious organised crime. They get their kit from wherever they can all over the world. And it's absolutely clear in how this has changed through the years that's uh, they're you know that's what they're doing is it just one group or is it a series of different organized crime groups or how, how does it work can you just sort of explain what the chain is 
So there's not one organised kind group that controls the whole of the small boats crossings route. And, and, and that's why it's so important to close down the route itself. And that's something that you know, you've heard me say time again, that we need to bring the actual route, the small boats crossings route to an end, so that the people smugglers and the migrants alike know they can't break into Britain in that way. And the reason for that is that there are multiple criminal gangs who operate on a global level and right through to the the uh, French beaches. So they, um, so it can be people who are smuggled as far away as Vietnam or Eritrea, from Iran, a whole a huge amount of different countries. Obviously, more recently, there's been a large number of people from Albania. And there'll be different groups involved in the different people smuggling operations. They'll be collecting money differently. They might be asking for loans or how they raise money or indeed collect the money uh, when people arrive in the UK differently. Um, there, there are a whole range of factors. And of course, some of those will be people being people trafficked, particularly concerns around uh, young girls from some of those countries like Eritrea and Vietnam who end up in the country. So it is serious organised crime on an industrial scale. Do you have evidence to suggest that you've got these different organised crime groups all working in cahoots? You might have, you know, a a criminal organisation, some sort of mafia organisation, say, in China or in in Asia, working alongside one that maybe works in Central Europe or, you know, the Middle East. I mean, is there evidence to to suggest that there's a joined up pattern between these groups? Well, certainly the National Crime Agency have said that the organised crime gangs that are involved in the people smuggling operations are involved in a vast array of other really serious organised crime activities. And I think what we saw most recently uh, in answer to to that particular question, Simon, is we saw with the Albanian uh, groups moving in and working with some of these pre-existing organisations before the Albanian agreement was entered into by the government, which has seen that sort of 90% drop now in Albanians coming in through the small boats route and effectively closed down a large part of that operation. So, you know, there has been some visibility of those groups or, or individuals working together with other individuals who are in position and particularly on those French coasts. And I, anyone who has sort of seen, had visibility of how these operations worked is, is, is amazed at how these trades are, you know, entered into, openly discussed, actually just on the streets of France and in, of course, the migrant camps. Okay, and uh, finally, the Rwanda bill looks like it's going to, well, looks like it's going to go through. Uh, well, I mean, where do you stand on, on that? Do you think that they will act as a deterrent in the way that the Prime Minister has certainly indicated that he hopes it will, that um, obviously if you you have that deterrent in your back pocket, that it might deter those people from taking to the small boats? Well, we know that where there are returns agreements in place, that they can be very effective as a deterrent. And I mentioned the Albanian agreement, that's been hugely effective at what was you know, a massive increase in the amount of people who are coming in on the small boats and who are Albanian. And now that's you know, absolutely fallen, 90% reduction with that returns agreement. So the returns, uh, returns agreements can work really well. And I think what Rwanda and for Italy has done a similar deal with Albania, what those agreements are, are really looking at as well is what do you do when it's just simply not possible to return someone 
who has arrived to the original country that they came from. Now, my long-standing view is the country that they came from is France and that uh, we should be having a cross-channel agreement with France, a comprehensive cross-channel agreement, so that not only the boats uh, are stopped getting in the water, but wherever people are found in the channel, that they are returned swiftly to France. I do think that would be the surest way to bring an end to the small boats crossing. And the whole business of people coming or wanting to come to Britain is, is not is not new. But in certainly in the last decade, there appears to be a sort of a much greater um, imperative for economic migration. And I, I mean that in, in as much as people are fleeing country because literally there is famine caused by climate change and they are literally leaving for those reasons. So even if the small boat crossing the network was smashed and you could sort of stop that. We we'll always find another way of doing it. Do you, do you agree with that? Well, there are um, you know, estimated to be over 100 million people worldwide who are displaced, and that might be from conflict, so from war. It might be through famine or other related issues. So it is absolutely a global challenge that needs to be answered. I would really like to see a firm focus at the United Nations, as has happened with the climate change, the COP, 26, 27, 28, and so on, the COP arrangements, I would like to see a similar global focus, which actually has a new settlement for dealing with global migration and support. It's absolutely right that we should help people around the world who are displaced and in need, wherever that may be, to help people near their home regions, because we know that that's where majority of people want to be, to be able to settle and indeed to return home um, you know, when, for example, in the case of conflict, it comes to an end. So I absolutely support a new global settlement. I think given the pressures on Western nations, it's becoming very critical that those conversations start and that we have a refresh of actually how some of these traditional and movement conventions work to make sure that we're looking after people in the best place possible near their places of home. Uh, Natalie Elphick, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's Kent Politics Pod. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to also tune into KMTV on Fridays at 5pm for its politics show. And we'll be back next week with more top news and analysis. All the best now. Thanks for listening to the Kent Politics Podcast. Don't forget to check out stories throughout the week on the politics page of Kent Online. And you can watch the Kent Politics Show with Rob Bailey on KMTV every Friday at 5pm or on demand at kmtv.co.uk. This has been an I Am Listening original podcast. For more information, head over to our website, im-listening.co.uk. 